But at midnight there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Matthew chapter 25, verse 6. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. That was sounding really good, by the way, this thing, hallelujah. Let me say a prayer. Father, please um, bless me as I preach to make your word clear and edifying. Well, it is edifying. Help me to not obscure its goodness. May it build up your people this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. So I think we need a quick refresher on Jewish wedding rituals to understand some of the parts that are more obscure about the parable that Jesus teaches and recorded in today's gospel. So just a reminder that um, in Jesus' day, um, you didn't just get informally engaged and then have this really official marriage. You had a very official betrothal ceremony. Um, and then you'd have a betrothal which would last like a year plus. And then the ceremony for the wedding, the actual kind of witnessed ceremony, would take place customarily um, at the family of the bride's house. And then the whole, like everyone who's there for the wedding, the bridal party, all the guests, the families, you'd all kind of march over in like happy procession to the groom's house for the big feast, uh, where the rest of the reception, what we would call a reception. And the, um, the wedding attendants, um, sort of the descendants of which are the modern like bridesmaids and groomsmen that these days really just kind of stand there in expensive attire, um, had a much sort of uh, thicker social function back then of being sort of the testators to like, yes, this is this real person, I'm vouching for them, and witnesses to the ceremony, uh, and they were sort of fundamental to the event, and they really did act as sort of valets and chauffeurs, kind of like guiding people to what was needed and kind of making the whole event happen. So with that in view, um, we see that the parable that Jesus tells um, maps pretty readily, very readily, onto uh, our Christian life as we're living it in this interim period between the first coming of Christ uh, and his promised second coming. And we know the parable is definitely about the second coming because it begins with just that little word, then. Right? Then the kingdom of God will be like, which differs from almost every other instance when Jesus teaches about the kingdom of God with a parable where he just says the kingdom of God is like, right, in the present and for the future. But he says, then, talking about his second coming, then um, tells us the future, and then we, of course, intuit immediately that the bridegroom is a picture of Christ. We have the sort of helping hand of the full witness of Scripture that we're very familiar with this imagery from Ephesians. I always forget the chapter number. I think it's chapter 5. Chapter 5, Christ the Bridegroom. <laughs> I think it's chapter 5. It's definitely in Ephesians. Um, that Christ is the Bridegroom, uh, and we the church are the bride. But this is new revelation as Jesus is delivering it. Um, occasionally here and there in the Old Testament, Yahweh had been likened to the great Bridegroom of Israel. But this, uh, this fuller expression of the true reality, that the Messiah himself, who is the God-man, he is the actual bridegroom. This is new revelation with this parable. And it is, if you try to imagine for a second prior to having heard this, it's a startlingly intimate teaching, right? That God, through his son, through the incarnate Messiah, wants to have such union of intimacy, connection, collaboration, um, as is witnessed to in marriage, 
This is very, very different from some remote deism or just some sort of moral code to follow. This is startlingly an intimate parable. And the virgins in the parable, um, you could sort of translate that roughly as bridesmaids. That's us, of course. And by us, I mean the church. Um, I think this parable more clearly maps on not to a picture of the whole world, but of the church. And those who knew that there was a wedding happening, who were ready and who were a part of it. The bride's house corresponds to the earth where we live. And the groom's house corresponds to heaven, um, where the Son of God sits, uh, seated at the right hand of the Father presently. And the arrival of the bridegroom um, corresponds to the second coming, which then also gives us this clue of this cry. At midnight, there's this cry. The parable doesn't say who spoke it. But we get this wonderful tie-in with the First Thessalonians reading that we just heard, which says, um, the Lord will descend with the voice of an archangel. So even the parable, even this sort of anonymous cry, it's the angelic cry, the annunciation of the angel saying, Christ is coming back. Christ is coming back. And um, like, like some parables, but not all, Jesus grabs at the end a sort of clear, like sort of make sure you don't miss this teaching for the, for the um, lest it be lost in sort of the veil of the parable. And he ends with the directive, watch, therefore. So we kind of already know what the point of the parable is because Jesus just hands it to us on a silver platter. Um, watch, as in keep watch, as in the way watchmen watch a city at night. Be on guard, be ready, be prepared for. In other words, live with an awareness that he is coming back. Don't forget this fact. And very kindly, Jesus builds into the parable a truth I think we feel now more than ever with 2,000 years of church history behind us, that there's this sense that the bridegroom is taking a long time to get here, right? And it says in the scripture, verse 5, the bridegroom was delayed. Jesus actually built that in. There'll be this perception like, where is he? Shouldn't he have come already? And Christians in every generation have felt that. And with every generation more, it becomes more and more acute. Why isn't he here already? A question to which the Spirit gives answer in First Peter um, he is waiting so that even more people can come to repentance. It's his mercy that causes him to wait and no other motive. We're waiting for him. So there's one detail that I overlooked, perhaps you caught it, that doesn't map so easily from the parable to Christian life. Like all of those pieces are pretty one-to-one, right? But the piece that doesn't map in such a clear one-to-one way is this... Um, sort of central detail of the oil, right? The oil that the virgins had, whether for a lamp or a torch or some kind of illuminating thing. Um, A detail which the sort of players in the parable, which correspond to we as Christians, are culpable for, that there's five of the virgins, bridesmaids, who are called wise and five who are called foolish and based on whether or not they had enough oil to last this long night as they waited for the bridegroom. Now, there is a sort of sidewing detail that's meaningful, which we can learn from the parable, which is that each of us is accountable for ourselves on Judgment Day. Because the, the five foolish say to the five wise, oh, give us some of your oil. Right? There's no, you can't just appeal like, well, other saints were holy, can I get into? It's like, no. Um, we're accountable for ourselves. But it still doesn't answer, what is the oil in the parable? What does it signify? 
Well, um, I want to suggest something that may or may not be satisfying, which is that um, I don't really know what the oil means. I do know that it has this sort of heart meaning even before I can understand it with my mind. That in the world of the parable, it's like, yeah, have enough oil. I couldn't explain that with rational teaching, but it does make sense here even before we can explain it. And I want to suggest that this is as a way of reading the scripture, that it has weight and meaning prior to our ability to understand it. Right? I hope that in 10 years I'll be able to preach a better sermon on this oil um, when I understand it better. But even before we have rational understanding, we can ponder it in our hearts with meditation. Right? Yeah, Lord, what is though? I don't know what it is, but please give me grace that I would have enough of it, that I would last a long night. Secondly, um, if we turn to the church fathers and how they interpreted the oil, what we see is that every church father has like a different interpretation, which tells me that there isn't some sort of clear and obvious interpretation that, well, we just missed because of our modern, you know, blinders or paradigm. And that's just a useful thing to know about the church fathers. Sometimes they speak in total unison and it's like, well, that, that's probably the best apostolic interpretation or, or, or confidently is the best interpretation. But when they speak sort of in a mixed witness, it's like, well, okay, we're all just kind of praying through the scripture, trying to, to, to understand as best we can. So it might seem, for instance, um, that the oil corresponds to deeds of faith, right? Because we know from elsewhere in the scripture, that's what's going to be brought out on judgment day to be looked at for, are we found in Christ or not? That's how John Chrysostom takes it. But I think that would more cor- clearly correspond to the flame of the lamp, because that's what's visible, Right? What's the oil that funds the flame? What's the oil that funds the flame? The spirit? Wow, that, yeah. Um, I hadn't thought about that, but I like that idea because we see that the spirit's anointing being likened to the anointing with oil. But then there's a question of quantity because the spirit doesn't come in portions. You know, we receive the spirit fully. So I want to think about that. It might be an interpretation. Um, or it is an interpretation. It might be a really good one. I did find one interpretation that I think is uh, meaningful, found in Origen, who's one of the great early interpreters of the church. And I've been thinking about this in the, for just a couple of days. But I think it's right. I, th- I, think, well, I think it's beating in the right direction, I'll say that. And the idea is that the oil corresponds to holy teaching. And let me explain what St. Paul calls in Acts the whole counsel of God. That there's a way in which if you only heard sort of a five-second presentation of the gospel, that would be enough to lay a hold of Christ and pray to him for salvation. But it would be hard to fund a whole life of faith if all you had was that five-second sort of quick download of knowledge. We've been given far more than a five-second download of knowledge, right? The whole counsel of God, what is often referred to it with a little c as the... The, the Catholic faith, the truth of God, that to sort of acquire for ourselves the truth of God, which expands and nourishes and widens faith from which holy deeds then can come, and that's a picture of our readiness. And if this is a, interpretation's correct, and it's the best I've found so far, but I invite you to continue pondering beyond it. It, it sort of excites and invites my mind in a way. I think we sometimes think about t- Christian teaching in the paradigm of, this, of school. Like, oh, it's just stuff you've got to learn. 
I said, no, this is stuff, this is the oil that fills the lamp that will keep faith burning through a long night. And so in that way, I think we can receive exhortation to be diligent in seeking out the teaching of God, first and foremost in the scriptures, and then secondarily from faithful teachers in books, podcasts, at church, like, but, but seeking it out the way that if you love anything, you kind of seek out knowledge about that thing. I'm sure there's things you can learn about football teams if you're into football, and there's, I don't know what, what you could learn about them, but I, I know that people do. Listen to radio shows and read blogs, I don't know. <laughs> but when you seek out knowledge about things that you love, and so in loving God, to seek out knowledge about him, to be zealous, to, oh Lord, I want to know more. Fill me with the oil of holy knowledge that faith will continue to burn uh, for a lifetime. And that we will be found in a frame of mind that is ready to receive Christ when he comes again. It could be this afternoon. It could be right now. We don't know. It could be 100 years from now. We don't know. No one knows the day or the hour. And it's not that like the Lord is trying to part give us this... Um, overly precise test, like, are you found ready or not? But readiness comes, is sort of the tip of the iceberg of a whole Christian life of faith lived underneath it. That lack of readiness implies, well, I don't really care about Christ or believing in him. Readiness implies, no, I, I do care about Christ and believing him. So it's um, an assessment of the tip of the iceberg. But anyways, my prayer is that um, in contemplating this parable this week, um, you would have a deeper longing to not run out of oil, whatever that means, and would be found ready when we hear the angel cry, the bridegroom comes, we would receive him with joy, just as we sung in that perfect hymn that sort of is the best expression of, I think, this parable, that we would receive him with joy. Rejoice, rejoice, believers. Amen.